Well, good morning, fellowship. Uh, will you please stand with us this morning as we worship our King? i 
speaks to me, especially the line that says, with every breath that I am able. It really speaks to me. Um, that, that is my name, Abel. You, you, uh, before you uh, sit down, y'all can scooch on in, scooch on in. Uh, we'll have some people. It helps our ushers out if you can scooch to the middle. Well, welcome to Fellowship. We are glad you're here. As I said, my name's Abel. This is Susan. With every breath that you are Susan, you will sing of the goodness of God, right? Um, I know, it's terrible. Uh, bad jokes to start with. Hey, this morning we get to participate, and I use that word intentionally, participate in a, parent, in a child dedication. And so we as a church body get the opportunity to invest in the next generation. And it is a privilege. So many of you will uh, really spend time with these kids and their friends as they grow up. Whether you lead an early childhood group, whether you lead an elementary and student ministry, whether you are a host home, whether your kids are friends with them and you have them over to your home, or whether you're just invo involved in, through the ministry of prayer, you will invest in this next generation. And for that, we're grateful. We're really, really grateful. From the youngest Age to 18, we teach kids who Jesus is and how to follow him. We don't do childcare, we don't do babysitting, we disciple, and you get to be a part of that. It would be a missed opportunity if I didn't invite you to be um, more involved in a regular and consistent way in our early childhood ministry. Well, last week, we had 264 kids, zero to four years old. That... <laughs> It does. It does deserve applause. I mean, think about that little army of, of Christ followers, future Christ followers. And uh, with that means we need more leaders. And so you might be a dutiful servant, servant, soldier, like, all right, I'll show up. I'll hold babies. But I, I promise if you uh, commit to showing up once a month or twice a month or every week, that duty will turn into a delight. Because you get the privilege of setting the foundation for these young little lives to see what the body of Christ is like and to kind of form this image of, of who God is um, in them. And so on our early childhood team, Susan Greathouse is here. Our early childhood team does a tremendous job. Would you all thank Susan and her team? Good morning. At this time, we're going to have the five families come on up. And I just want to, you know, encourage you guys. This morning, these parents are here to commit before you as their church that they will raise their children in Christ-centered homes. We, the church, want to partner with these parents. And while they are teaching their children to know and love God as they are sharing God's word with them, we also want to walk alongside them as they travel this parenting journey. Your you, their church family, will be supporting them, hopefully in their classrooms, but also as a part of community groups, walking and doing life together. Yeah, so this discipleship process will, will take place for these kids over the next two decades, but we see this morning as an important part of that process, of starting it 
um, with our church family. We believe baptism should happen when a believer makes a profession of faith. But this child dedication for these little ones, we still want to have a stake in the ground moment where we dedicate them to the Lord. Think of Hannah dedicating Samuel, Jesus getting consecrated in the temple. We want to have a moment like that where we say these kids are dedicated to the Lord and we, as part of the church family, um, get to witness to that and we get to say this is the moment that we as a church commit to discipling along with these parents, these young kids. Yeah, so here are our families. We have Jake and Tip with Joanna, Joanna Grace, and then we also have Micah and Ashley with Faith, and we have Paul and Alicia with Rillian. We have Ricky and Michelle with Reagan, and Joel and Lily with Nestor. Well, parents, raising kids is one of the hardest things you will do. Can I get an amen? But it's also one of the most rewarding and fulfilling. God has given you the weight of guidance and care for his creation. Now, these kids are his, but he has seen you. He has seen fit for you to raise them and to shepherd them and to parent them. And it's an honor. You get to set the pace of their lives. You get to set the priorities. And the greatest thing you can do is to have a vibrant a live, growing relationship with Jesus. You'll teach what you know, but you'll reproduce who you are. And so encourage y'all to invest in your relationship with Jesus and in your marriage and commit these kids to the Lord. That'll make the biggest difference. Well, let me give y'all an opportunity to affirm this commitment. So parents, do you commit to loving your kids with Christ-like love, to leading them through humility apologizing when you mess up, teaching them God's word, investing them into biblical community, and shepherding them as a gift from the Lord. If so, say, we will. Awesome. Hey, you want to invite up um, community groups, extended family. If you know or love one of these families, would you come up to stage? We're going to have uh, an opportunity to pray over these families and so um, we'll give you all a chance. And then us as a, as a church body, we'll pray as well. You'll see, you see these five beautiful faces on the screen. Um, and as, as this community prays for them, encourage you all to pray for these little lives as they continue to grow. And, uh, and then I'll close us in just a few minutes. So uh, you all can pray for these families.
Well, Lord, we pray that you would be the master of these kids' lives. We pray that they would bow their knee to you, that they would see you as uh, their sovereign Lord, that they would experience the joy and the delight, the delight that comes with following Jesus. We pray that you would give them a godly mate. If they get married one day, we pray right now for their mate. Lord, we pray that you would put them on your mission to make disciples. And we ask all of this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Hey, would you encourage these families as they exit? worship through a song this morning. Would you stand with us again? And I wanted to take a few moments before we enter this next song. Uh, we're going to sing an old song, but it's a celebratory song, and we're celebrating the faithfulness of God. And so would you call to mind uh, moments in your life, maybe specific relationships or instances where he's been faithful to you? And what's a time when God has shown up Let's, let's reflect on those. So take a moment. One way that God's shown up for me recently, um, I actually had an injury where I broke my shoulder and had to go to the ER through that whole process from the ride to the ER, to the time in the hospital, to the weeks of recovery, the outpouring of love that manifested through prayers and meals and food and support and money and time and calls and follow-ups and even still people asking me, how are you doing? How's that shoulder? Has just been a poignant reminder of how the Lord loves me, how he cares for me and how no matter the circumstances, he's gonna provide for my every need and when we sing this song, Ancient of Days, he's before time, he's after time, but he's also right here. He's in this room, he's on the move right now with us. And so these moments where we can remember how he's been faithful help in the moments when we maybe doubt or discouraged about his faithfulness. So regardless of where you are this morning, would you reflect on that faithfulness, that moment, that anchor point, and let it encourage you as we celebrate and we sing this song.
amen. Father, thank you that you are the ancient of days, that we can celebrate you as being sovereign over all culture and all time, and yet meeting us in our culture and our time to tell your story of faithfulness and good news in our lives. Would you remind us of that this morning? And as we give our tithes and our offerings, would it be an act of faithfulness, Lord, back to you, that you would multiply these gifts to accomplish that purpose in Northwest Arkansas and in the Lord, or in the world, in Lord. So thank you for being here with us. Would you encourage our hearts? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.
Lord Jesus, I can't think of anything more comforting uh, than knowing and seeing you as the God who is over all events and all time, but also the God who is in it with us. It brings us hope. And right now we think of people in Turkey and in Syria. And oh God, they need that vision of you to see you as the sovereign Lord who is over all events, but also very much in it with them. Lord, we cannot fathom the depths of the despair that comes with 28,000 dead, 20 Hurricane Katrinas hitting at the same time. We are asking now that you would move in power, bring relief and restoration, raise up aid, Father, raise up your body of Christ for our brothers and sisters in the church in Syria and Turkey. We are asking for protection and provision over them, but we are also asking that you would make, that you would make this a bright moment for the church of Jesus in their service and their love and their prayer and their care, the way they weep with those who weep, and then in the moments where they can rejoice with those who rejoice. So we lift them up put our hope in you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Hey, how a word about how God sovereignly works. Um, we have four missionary teams on the ground in Turkey, church planters, different areas of the region. Uh, um, God has been growing a generosity movement in this body, and we have created a disaster relief fund, and you know that. For years we've done that. And God has, before this event happened, supplied that fund to such a degree that we are positioned and mobilized to put resources in our trusted partners' hands on the ground. And I just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you. You know, we think we're doing just the little things faithfully, and we have no idea how God uses the collective little things faithfully for us to come together in unique ways. So thanks for your generosity and your continued involvement and things like that. Well, good morning. Oh, thank you. I'm among friends too. And I want to tell you this service I'm way prouder of than the first service because I'm seeing a lot more red shirts this morning, and I find that encouraging. Red's just a nice color for a day like today, is it not? I do think on this Super Bowl Sunday morning, if we were in Phoenix at the game live, we would probably see a a healthy dose of red and green mixed. In fact, I do think there'll be one woman, Mrs. Kelsey, who'll be wearing both at the same time. So the Super Bowl, at least the NFL's goal, is that the Super Bowl always be played on a neutral field where there's no home field advantage for either team. Now, two weeks ago, both the Eagles and the Chiefs, they had home field advantage in their conference uh, finals, and it made a world of difference. If you're one of those doubters that don't believe that home field advantage matters much, I just encourage you to pick up the phone and call one of the 49ers or the Bengals. Because I'm telling you, if you're the Bengals right now, you can still hear that, what they would think is cursed chop going. And if you are the 49ers right now, it's like an earworm uh, burrowed in your ear where you are hearing fly, eagles fly over and over again. See, when you are not on your home turf, Everyone looks different to you. They talk differently. They dress differently. 
They paint their faces differently. Everything is unique. When you play on the other team's court in basketball, fans mock every air ball. Fans boo every call that doesn't go their way. And then if they're winning in the closing seconds, fans bless you by jingling their car keys at you on the way out. Yeah, there is a reason they call it a hostile environment. And that's the environment the Jews have to play their lives out on in the book of Daniel that we kicked off last week. The Jews, as you know, were conquered by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Jerusalem and the temple were sacked. And then many of the Jews were deported back to Babylon where they were made, not refugees, let's call them what they were, POWs. They were there against their will in hostile territory. Nebuchadnezzar had the best and the brightest of those deportees, those POWs, brought into his palace to be tutored and mentored in all things Babylon. And so Daniel and his three friends find themselves forcefully enrolled in Nebuchadnezzar's emerging leadership program. And there, they're taught the language of Babylon. They're taught the history, the philosophy, the science, the culture of Babylon. Most importantly, they are taught the God of Babylon. And just to show these four young men how thoroughly immersed and how their new identity has changed, Nebuchadnezzar has their Hebrew names, tying them to the God of Israel, changed to a Babylonian name, tying them to the God of Marduk. Men and women, these Teenagers have no home field advantage. And some of you feel that way from time to time. Maybe at work, you look around and you think, I'm the only one left in this office who embraces biblical values. And I am so tired of feeling overwhelmed and uh, outnumbered. Maybe for some of you, you actually look at the world around you and you find yourself uh, thinking, when did the culture change? I mean, I'm finding myself longing for the good old days. Yeah, I know the good old days weren't perfect, but things seem so hostile right now. I feel so out of place. Well, guess what? Feeling out of place, that's the normal for exiles. And exiles is not just a 70-year chapter in Jewish history. It is a theme in Scripture for the people of God. Genesis chapter three is our first exiles. Adam and Eve exiled from their garden home after their rebellion to Yahweh. The New Testament records a, an exile uh, mentality as well. Uh, Peter wrote the letter of first Peter and he introduces it. He says, to the church living in exile, meaning we're not home yet. In fact, you know how he closes 1 Peter? It's the most unusual greeting. He says, she who lives in Babylon greets you. The she is the local church. And for Peter, his vision of the world that Babylon wasn't just a historical empire five centuries before the time of Christ. No, Babylon was a historical empire, but it is a symbol of any world system that sets itself up against God. He says, church, that's where you live. You live in Babylon. And so Daniel tells us not only how to live in Babylon, but even how to thrive in Babylon. 
And Hunter kicked us off last week and told us that the first six chapters are the biographical stories of Daniel. They tell us what happened to he and his six friends. The last six chapters are the visions of Daniel. They tell us what will happen on the earth after Daniel. But chapter two is a bit unique. It kind of hangs in the middle. It's the story of a vision that Daniel interprets for Nebuchadnezzar. And so what we're gonna do this morning is we're gonna take chapter two and chapter seven and eight, tie them together, because they're the story of three visions that mirror each other. And we're gonna move quickly as we see what those three visions can show us this morning. These visions came to Daniel and to Nebuchadnezzar as a dream. Some of you know what exactly what it means to, or you've lived through what it means to have a dream that is so vivid, you're convinced uh, it was real. Any of you dreamers like that? I worked with a youth pastor years ago, and uh, he was um, prone to having very vivid, real dreams. And before he and I had to travel overseas together, his wife pulled me aside and said, hey, you just need to, to know that sometimes his dreams get so vivid and so real that he sleepwalks and he sleep talks and he acts them out. It was too late to cancel my trip. One night in the middle of that trip, he and I are sharing a very small guest room in a host home, and I wake up to loud talking, and he's walking, and his eyes are wide open, and he's filled with adrenaline, and his fists are clenched, and he said, I'm looking for the intruder. Someone's come in to try to hurt the children, and he's bigger than me. And did I mention he was looking for a man who could be an intruder? It was terrifying for me. Forget him, for me. We never traveled overseas again. <laughs> Daniel's dreams were visions from God, though, giving detailed preview of world events. In fact, the events that we'll talk about this morning are so specific, so detailed, that, that liberal scholars, or let's just say it this way, those who don't have a real high view of the Bible and of Scripture, they say there is no way Daniel could have been written in three, or excuse me, 537 BC. That was before all these events come to pass. There's no way he could have known this. It had to have been written more like 200 BC. After all, how could Daniel predict the future? And we say, well, Daniel's not the only author. There's an author, capital A, behind the Bible. And if you believe that God knows the future as well as the past, I do, then you have no problem believing that the Bible contains prophecy of the future that actually comes to pass. You know, when my older brother was in college, he started investigating this new Christianity that had grabbed my heart and changed my life. And while wrestling with the Bible, he came across the book of Daniel. And because he's a history lover, it gave him confidence in the Bible to see that Daniel's prophecies were played out on human history timeline. I hope that your confidence increases this morning too. A friend of mine found out we were gonna be teaching through Daniel here at Fellowship, and she's a member here, and she said, this is one of my favorite books of the Bible. And I said, really, why is that? And this was her email. She said, well, Daniel tells me that the future is unknown to us, and yet the future is well known to God. And sometimes the future is made known 
to us. And she's right. So let's look at that first vision. Daniel chapter two, verse one. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled. He could not sleep. So the king summoned his magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. This is what the rest of the text says. He pulls those men in and he says, I need you to not only interpret my dream, I need you to tell me what it is that I dreamed and then interpret it for me. And if you can, oh, you will be well rewarded. And if you can't, I will cut you to pieces and just to show that I'm mad, I'll tear down your house. Of course, their response was exactly what yours would be. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods. And they do not live among humans. And oh, how we know how wrong they are. For our God took on flesh and lived among us. And his name is Jesus our Christ. Daniel gets pulled into this story in verse 14. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guards, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. Don't miss that. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. And at this, talk about courage. Daniel went into the king and asked him for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Did Daniel know the dream yet? No. I would call this a walk of faith. How about you? Verse 17, then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. You know them in the story also as Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Oh, the suffering was personal for Daniel. This was hostile territory. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. And then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. And then you see him break into more praise. Oh, I thank and praise you, oh God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. And now Daniel approaches Nebuchadnezzar. The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, Belt, excuse me, Belteshazzar, that's his Babylonian name. Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? I love this answer. Daniel replied, no wise man, no enchanter, no magician, no diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But... There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. 
Notice how Daniel is living in Babylon. He represents Yahweh, even when he knows he has no home field advantage. There's no cowardice in him to hold back who it is that's behind his life and over all the affairs that happen. But at the same time, Daniel does not go on attack against the culture. He does not demand that it change. In fact, I get a good strong sense here that Daniel is wise enough to know that Babylonians will get up every day and act very uh, Babylonian. And it's only foolish followers of God who ask our lost culture to act found. No, when my lost friends and neighbors look confused in life, I call that integrity. Their insides and their outsides match. Yeah, Daniel doesn't demand they change, but at the same time, he doesn't isolate or separate himself from the culture. Actually, that wasn't an option for him. He was drafted into the king's service. While he's there, even though he's been thoroughly indoctrinated, he doesn't assimilate in the culture and just become Babylonian. Now, to quote Hunter last week, so well said, he said, Daniel lived with distinction and wisdom. I think that's how he thrived in Babylon. See, he didn't just live there and endure his 70 years. He was thriving, and that took wisdom and discernment. In fact, if you read all of chapter two, you see the word wisdom is one of the most repeated words in the chapter. But not only wisdom and discernment, it took a sense of, of him knowing exactly who he was and who his God was. Uh, he had already pledged allegiance of his heart to Yahweh and Yahweh only. And as a result, it empowered him to live with faith and courage in his culture. So let's look at the vision he actually interprets. We see it in chapter 2, verse 31. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its leg legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and it smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing room floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Well, that's pretty clear, isn't it? What does it mean? Nebuchadnezzar has this dream of a statue, head of gold, chest of silver, belly, thighs of bronze, legs of iron, feet of iron and clay. But more importantly than the statue was this rock that seemed to grow, but it wasn't shaped by human hands. It hits the feet and the whole statue comes down, goes to pieces. It's blown away. There is no more trace of it. But the rock grows and remains forever and fills the earth. Intrigued with it? Daniel says this is its interpretation. The head of gold is the Babylonian Empire. The chest of silver is the Medo-Persian Empire that comes next. 
fact, we'll talk about the Medo-Persian Empire in the next couple of chapters. The belly and thigh of bronze is the empire of Greece. The legs of iron, the empire of Rome, 146 BC to 476 AD. And then the feet of iron and clay, it's a future empire, a, a one that's like Rome, but also mixed with other kingdoms of this earth. Daniel gives us a timeline in this vision of world empires that will come to pass. And he zeroes in on the most important part of the vision in verse 44. He says, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all these, those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will himself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands. Oh no, it's a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. And then he says this to Nebuchadnezzar. King, the dream is true. You should take it to the bank and count on it. Now don't forget who he's talking to the king who's just threatened the other magicians that if you can't predict what my dream was and interpret it, I tear you apart in your houses. This is a wicked and evil king. This is a dicey thing to say. How does the king respond? Verse 47, the king said to Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries for you were able to reveal this mystery. Hey, I wonder, is Nebuchadnezzar's heart beginning to turn? I don't know. I think that's a good question you ask. Let's hold it for two weeks until we get to chapter four. For now, is your imagination at least captured? I mean, Daniel is 17 years old, and miraculously, he's, miraculously, he's just interpreted the king's dream and very boldly, he's just plainly given him the explanation. And if that's not a big enough stretch of your mind, hold on and fast forward 50 years. Because Daniel now in chapter 7 is somewhere around 70 years old. And he's the one that has a vision. And it's of a similar set of world events. We pick up in Daniel chapter 7, verse 2 and 3. Daniel said, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Whenever you read particularly Old Testament, uh, you see the great sea is a symbol for all of humanity. And we say that in our world too. We say the sea of humanity. He said, I looked at the sea of humanity and four beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. Four beasts coming out of this great sea of humanity. The next four verses explain those four beasts. He says, first I saw a winged lion. Next I saw a great bear. Third I saw a winged leopard with four heads. And then fourth I saw a terrifying beast with iron teeth and ten horns. And no, you have not just gotten stuck on a binge of Stranger Things season four. This is his vision. What's it mean? He goes on to explain it. He says, well, the winged lion, that's a symbol for Babylon. 
In fact, by the way, if you go to the British Museum today, they have artifacts from the kingdom of Babylon. A winged lion is in there. Secondly, a bear. That's a symbol for the Medo-Persian Empire that would come in about 12 years. The winged leopard with four heads. What's that about? Well, if you were in my son's AP World History class, you would have studied about the Greek Empire and Alexander the Great, who swiftly conquered the known world in 12 years, unheard of at that time where troop movement was so slow. In fact, it's said that at 32 years old, he sat down and he wept for there were no more kingdoms to conquer. In other words, he was forced into early retirement. He didn't handle early retirement well, and so in a drunken stupor, he dies. His kingdom was divided by his four lead generals. Winged leopard, four heads. And then he says it's followed by a terrifying beast, and that's Rome. You notice how Daniel's vision is very similar to Nebuchadnezzar's, except it's imagery. Don't miss it. It gives us two different perspectives of human government and earthly empires. Nebuchadnezzar's vision, he saw a a statue that, according to Daniel, was very great and dazzling and awesome. Daniel's vision, he saw beasts that, according to him, were terrifying, frightening, violent, and powerful. This, men and women, is two perspectives on earthly empires. One is glorious, the other is beastly. One is humanity's view, view of power, and the other is God's view of earthly power. We see glory God looks at the beastly reality underneath it. Hey, Christian who is living in Babylon, beware. Beware of becoming seduced and captivated by the power of earthly government. Beware of causing yourself to to gloss over its glory and not see the beastly realities that all human governments can have. You know, it's ironic that God chooses to use beasts to symbolize human government because we do as well. We have eagles, elephants, and donkeys. Mm. Maybe it's telling us something that we need to be aware of. Human government is a temporary reality in our world. Human government is a power system that we live within. It is our reality. It's actually a power system that we live under. And if for those small minority of us in the world that are blessed enough to live in a democracy, human government is even something we get to steward and participate in. But don't let stewardship ever confuse you or tempt you into thinking that you can worship it or that it will become your functional savior. Because Daniel's vision tells us the truth about all human government, not just these four, that God raises up government and puts it down in his time for his purposes. He alone will be the rightful ruler of his creation. Look at the action in Daniel's vision. The text itself in verse four through seven, if you just highlight who the prime mover is in the text, you see that each of those four empires was torn down or raised up. By whom? 
Each of those empires was given power for a time. By whom? We see words like it was told, it was given authority. Someone is over these earthly kingdoms, and that someone is a sovereign king himself. And who is this king? I don't want to know him in theory. I want to know him by name if he's that much in control. Daniel introduces us to one of the names of God in his vision. Chapter 7, verse 9. We sang of him this morning. And I looked, thrones were set in place, and the ancients of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. No, 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 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was sealed, and the books were opened. And if you've ever read any passages in the book of Revelation at the end time, you're saying to yourself, I've seen this somewhere. Yes, you have. A glimpse of the court scene at the end of all times where all of humanity comes before the sovereign king. And notice that he is seated on a throne. That's a position of rest. He's not wringing his hands. Our sovereign king is at rest and he rules. But the imagery strikes me. I didn't see it this morning until I was in the middle of the first service. The throne has wheels. God is on the move. He is at rest. And he is working even through the kingdoms and the empires that looked unshakable. This is our God. He's glorious and eternal and sovereign and on the throne all other earthly powers come up under him. And if that's not enough, Daniel keeps pressing it and he wants us to know this God specifically. And so in verse 13, he introduces us more to who he is. He says, in my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. How will Jesus return at his second coming? On the clouds. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority and glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. In the book of Revelation, we see pictured every tongue, tribe, and nation before the throne. Yes, our Turkish and Syrian brothers and sisters will be there with us. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Son of man. This is Jesus' favorite title for himself. He used it over 80 times. And he knew exactly what he was doing. He was tying himself back to Daniel's vision. And he was saying, you know how your hope was set in a deliverer who would finally conquer all other human authorities? I'm him. And I've come, and at his death and resurrection, he ascends, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father on a throne, and he is governing and ruling right now, sovereign. 
And in his patience and in his wisdom, he's even choosing to use good and evil human government. I don't know how he's so patient. But one day he'll come again on the clouds. And at his second coming, he will right all wrongs and he will put away human government because he doesn't need underlings anymore. He will set up a government fully and finally, completely and perfectly, and the kingdom of God will be represented according to the scriptures by justice, righteousness, peace, and joy. Sign me up for citizenship. And maybe that happens so soon that it happens before this worship service is out. Best Sunday ever. <laughs> Made the traffic worth it. but it is happening one day. And that is our hope. And that was Daniel's vision. And I walk away from that simply saying, oh my, God is in control of who is in control, even when things seem out of control. Folks, that is the essence of sovereignty. When sovereignty works on the ground, this is what it feels like. Now, Esther's life, last month, we opened the book of Esther and we saw that God was sovereign over every micro detail of her life, right? Now in the book of Daniel, we see that God is sovereign over every macro affair of the world. Matt Musgrave was so right. God is over all events and in all of them at the same time. This, believing this sovereignty, is how we live and thrive in Babylon. Because when you're not on home field turf, it's a scary place to believe if you believe that someone else who you cannot trust is in control. But this sovereignty is how we live in a way that causes us to have faith and courage at the same time. If you don't believe in God's sovereignty like this, you will live afraid, number one, or angry, number two. And it does explain why so many believers have lived over the last few years so angry and so scared. And that's the opposite of thriving. We rest in his sovereignty. Is your imagination captured yet? If not, we'll hit the third vision quickly. Two years after Daniel's first vision, he gets a second vision. There he sees, while he's standing by this canal, two beasts coming out of this canal. The first one is a ram with two horns. The second one is a goat with, a, with a one big horn that shatters the ram. And then the big horn breaks, and four little horns grow in its place. And then one of the little horns gets really big and fierce and mean. I know. Stranger things start to seem more like a reality show, doesn't it? Here's the vision. Briefly, chapter 8, verse 15. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man. And I heard a man's voice from the Ulai, that's the canal he was by, calling, Gabriel, that's the angel Gabriel. Tell this man the meaning of the vision. Gabriel said, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath because the vision concerns the appointed time of the what? The end. Our future is about to be read into this. 
He says, the two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between its eyes is the first king. We would call him Alexander the Great. The four horns that replace the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation but will not have the same strength and power. This is stunning. This vision is happening 12 years before Medo-Persia attacks Babylon and 220 years before Greece attacks Medo-Persia. Oh, this is incredible detail. It was so accurate. Verse 23, in the latter part of their reign, those four kingdoms raise up. One little horn gets big and really nasty. When the rebels have become completely wicked, a fierce-looking king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people, meaning God's people. He will cause deceit to prosper. He will consider himself superior. One version says pompous. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, not by human power. A great deal of emphasis is put on this last ruler who rises up. He rises up by raising himself up and throwing truth down. The NIV says he's a master of deceit. He persecutes God's people, and then he tries to face off with the prince of princes himself, the sovereign son of man. And then that ruler is destroyed. Look at verse 26. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been given you is true, but seal up the vision for it concerns the distant future. How distant? Who's that ruler? When does he come? And maybe it would help to understand how Bible prophecy tends to have what's known as double fulfillment, meaning it's prophesies an event that will come in the near term, but that event in the near term is a type or a foreshadowing of a major demonstration of that in the future. See, in Daniel's vision, it was fulfilled in the near term. If you can see, um, 168 BC is near term. Because Antiochus IV was a ruler who marched into Jerusalem and persecuted God's people in ways that they had never experienced yet. Antiochus IV, he called himself Antiochus Epiphanes. Translated, Antiochus, the appearance of your God. Translated, worship me. And so for Jews who were following Yahweh, he had them killed. And then he marched into their temple, into their holy of holies, and he built a, an, a, a, an idol of Zeus in the holy of holies. And then he took a pig and he sacrificed it on the mercy seat there. He was brutal. And yet, Jesus and the apostle Paul and the Apostle John talk about Daniel's vision of this ruler as though it's still going to happen in the future. Mm, double fulfillment. Antiochus Epiphanes did fulfill this prophecy in 168 BC, but there is another ruler who will do something similar, raise himself up, declare peace, 
break the peace treaty, persecute God's people, lift himself up and acknowledge him as God. The Apostle Paul and the Apostle John give him a name, the Antichrist. We'll talk more about him in chapters 10 through 12. The point is that Daniel's dreadful vision was partly fulfilled second century before Jesus, but it will not be fully and finally fulfilled until the end times. And maybe now you're sitting here feeling like Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz. Lions and tigers and bears, oh my. And part of you is even saying, Mark, I just got to tell you, I did not come to church wanting to hear three visions of strange beasts. It's very disturbing. And I say, you're right. And that just tells me you still have your good common sense about you. Because Daniel thought it was disturbing too. Look at verse 27. I, Daniel, was worn out. And I lay exhausted for several days. I was physically ill by seeing the suffering. Then this next line. Then I got up and went about the king's business. Still a faithful man, thriving in Babylon. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond my understanding. Ours too, huh? Daniel's heartbroken by suffering, and yet he's still able to walk faithfully. How? Because in the middle of these three visions, remember, statue, four beasts out of the sea, two beasts that grow extremely violent. In the middle of these three visions, right smack at the heart of him, he didn't just see evil empires. He didn't just see antichrists and rulers. He saw the ancient of days and the son of man, a sovereign king ruling over and working in and through the evil empires and the evil government of our age. He knew that one day all wrong would be set right and the son of man and the ancient of days would rule with justice and power and righteousness and joy. He was able to say to himself, God is in control of those who are in control, even when everything seems out of control. And men and women, we have to see God the same way. We have to. Maybe this morning you said, I came needing a word out of the scriptures to remind me of the redeeming and faithful love of God. Me too. I can't live a day without being reminded of the redeeming and faithful love of God. But if God is my lover, who does not have strength and sovereignty at the same time, he cannot be my savior because he has no power to deliver. He cannot be trusted because he has no strength to pull off the salvation I need. I need a God who loves and I need a God who is strong and you marry them together and I can rest in those hands that carefully and lovingly but sovereignly control. And that's who we have as you walk through your days this week. Lord God, we thank you for your strength and your goodness. We thank you for your sovereignty and your love. You are both in its fullness. You're not one or the other. You are both in its fullness and we rest and we trust. And we want to be about the king's business this week. And Jesus Christ is our king, no matter where he's assigned us to work or live or go to school, we want to be about his business. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. If you're brand new to fellowship, I 
Hope by now you've picked up that our habit is to teach through books of the Bible and take them as they come to us. So tempted to skip over these chapters and go on to the fun one on the fiery furnace. But we believe that all scripture benefits and strengthens our heart and our mind and our lives. And so continue, we hope, coming back and walking through this book with us. If we can connect with you, that would be our delight. And so our connections team is in the booth right across from the foyer. And if you can't stop by and see someone who's live and in person, use the QR code. We'd love to connect with you. And likewise, if you came in with a prayer burden, Donna and Phil would love to pray with you and for you right now. Church, God bless you. Let's be about the king's business this week.